This is Talking Animals on WMNF. My guests today are Rebecca Keith and Siri Lindley, co-founders of Horses in Our Hands, a Colorado-based nonprofit organization involving a broad coalition of experts dedicated to ending the widespread practice of horse slaughter. The focus of their efforts is to lobby Congress to ban the export of horses for the purposes of slaughter. This was in part the outgrowth of Lindley having rescued a horse four years ago, which prompted her to contemplate what exactly are we rescuing this horse from. This set in motion some serious research, which some years later led to Lindley and Keith, who are married, creating the In Our Hands Action Fund. With a background in high-level athletics, Lindley is a former two-time world champion triathlon coach, while Keith is a two-time world junior triathlon champion and three-time national triathlon champion. The pair has forged quite a path toward the effort to end horse slaughter through horses in our hands while they also operate their Believe Ranch and Rescue in Colorado, where they've saved more than 100 horses in just three years' time. We'll discuss these things when I, and more when I speak with Rebecca Keat and Siri Lindley in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in this program, I'll speak with Sue Weesey, founder of Operation Roger, a nonprofit that chiefly consists of truckers who use their trucks to transport animals who had been in shelters to new homes across the country. Weesey was a guest on the show some nine years ago, and I thought this was a really good time for a brief follow-up to see how Operation Roger is going these days, what impact COVID-19 has had, and any other updates there might be on those volunteer service that helps many animals land in homes that otherwise couldn't be reached. So also a quick nod to the late, great Dorothy Strauss, whose birthday was August 5th. So with that said, right now, let's get into the difficult but critically important topic of horse slaughter with Rebecca and Siri. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Rebecca Keith. And Siri Lindley on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning. Good morning. Well, that sounds like a rousing chorus right there. That's very impressive. I like it. <laughs> Concerning you guys, I, I should tell the audience, I guess, that you actually are on different phone lines for reasons that are too boring to go into. But um, but it sounded like you were actually on the same line there. So that's, let's, let's see if we can keep that going. So, of course, we'll get into horses and horse slaughter in a moment or two. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't delve into uh, something I mentioned in the intro there, uh, the athletics part of your collective narrative, just partly because we're talking about very high-level competition competition in a grueling sport and because it seems to me at least that that sort of fierce ambition and discipline is an enormous benefit when you're on a major quest like to end horse slaughter so uh, i'd like to ask each of you starting with you siri to briefly outline your athletic career starting with what drew you to the triathlon and, and going on to address some key challenges and triumphs along the way well, my story is kind of interesting because um, I fell in love with the sport of triathlon when I was 23 years old, which is quite old for this sport. 
and I didn't even know how to swim. Like I could float in a pool, but I didn't know how to swim. But I fell in love with it, and I came up with this impossible dream that I wanted to be the best in the world in this sport. And it was crazy. It was ridiculous because I was awful at it, and I didn't know how to swim. <laughs> quit, quit your bragging. There you go again. <laughs> yeah, this is my, my bragging. Yeah. But I put eight years of just my heart and soul and every ounce of, of every minute of my life into making this dream come true. And eight years later, I became the triathlon world champion and number one in the world. And I think the most powerful thing about this, and it was a difficult journey. I failed along the way. I was disappointed along the way, but that's what allowed me to grow and to learn. But it's given us, you know, in this situation, you know, we are, in a sense, people look at what we're trying to do as impossible. But it's like, hey, you know, I've achieved the impossible dream before, and we're going to do it again now. Um, so it's really helped your right to have that discipline and that will and that desire and determination is definitely helping us on this path as it has Rebecca as well. Yeah, so Rebecca, let's hear a little bit of your story as well, please. Yeah, so mine's a little different. I was uh, a very competitive kid. Uh, I grew up, I'm actually an identical twin, and my twin sister was a lot better than me at everything, a little bit more nat natural talent. So I used to have to work that little bit harder um, to, to beat my sister at anything, including school. So uh, I remember one day at school, our school teacher said, we're starting triathlon. It was like year eight. I was 13 years old. And I was so excited because we played basketball, netball, swimming. We did every single sport, soccer. And she just always had that little one up on me. And my sister decided that she didn't want to take up triathlon. So it wasn't cool. Mm. Um, and so uh, I, started, I started triathlon. I honestly found myself in the sport. Um, I found, uh, I guess, a love that I never uh, had had before for this sport. And I also felt like I found my identity. And it was the first time that I did something that my twin... Um, uh, didn't do with me. So I just, yeah, it was amazing. I really found myself in that sport. And I just, I started at third, uh, at 16 and uh, uh, didn't look back, had a 22 year career in the sport. It was very, very good to me. Wow. So really, she kind of created a, a opening when she decided she wasn't going to go down the uh, triathlon route. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if she did, I think she still would have kicked my butt. But, um, <laughs> you know, we'd even, we'd even race riding home from school every day. We'd race up this hill and I'd sometimes get a little head start to see if I could beat her. And every time she beat me. So, uh, no, it was it was great. She pushed me to being uh, uh, the best athlete I could be because if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have taken up the sport. So I thank my amazing twin sister for that. <laughs> yeah. So all these years later, um, to what degree are you guys still competitive? Um, we're still competitive. <laughs> well, Beck is very competitive still. She doesn't race anymore. Both of us are coaches. And... Um, we've had the ability to coach some incredible athletes to medals in the Olympics and world championship crowns. So it's been so fulfilling for, for both of us to be able to take what we learned as athletes and help other athletes now achieve their dreams. Um, Beck is still incredibly fit. Um, I don't know if you know, Duncan, but I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia uh, in November, and I just had a bone marrow transplant about five months ago, so I'm still recovering, but I am back on my bike and back running, and I intend to, in the next few years, be back by my wife's side, uh, being able to go just as hard and strong as she is. Wow. And how, how are you feeling at this point? That's not that long ago to have that kind of a uh, transplant. Jeez. Uh, Duncan, you know, um, I, I feel so grateful. I, a few weeks ago, got a call from my doctor. I am cancer-free. Oh, wow. And Yay. I get to live. I get to live. 
So uh, nice. the greatest miracle in the world. And uh, actually, our horses here at Believe Ranch and Rescue have helped me heal. They're just such incredible healers. So I have them to thank for truly helping me get through the toughest, darkest times. And my wife, of course, as well. But yeah, yeah thank you for asking, Duncan. For sure. It's a miracle. Wow. In light of that news, I say we stop the interview and start some sort of massive party instantly because that just <laughs> sounds like amazing news. So good for you. Congratulations. Yeah. That's really great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, so let's just return briefly to the uh, triathlete thing just because I have a couple more questions. And again, I think there are some interesting parallels in terms of what we're mainly here today to talk about, which is ending horse slaughter. But um, from a safe distance, it's, it's looked to me like just to enter a triathlon required a like highly conditioned, highly motivated athlete. But beyond those traits, what's required to actually win a triathlon, much less to go on and become a, sort of an ongoing champion? Um, it truly you know, just like what we're doing here with horses in our hands, it, it involves putting every ounce of your heart and soul and time yeah. into achieving this goal. It takes everything you have inside of you because you're asking of yourself to accomplish something extraordinary. And without putting in everything you have and going full throttle, it's just not going to happen. So, yeah, there's a, a, a definite parallel there. Um and we're using all the tools that we use to become great athletes in, in what we're trying to do now with ending horse slaughter. So what would be a detail, maybe a stereotype buster, let's say, about a triathlete that a regular person, a civilian like myself, would find surprising? Like, what is there some, like, kind of interesting, amusing little secret about triathletes that most of us wouldn't uh, have guessed? I would I, say, I Duncan, oh, it, yeah, you go first, you go first, Zach. No, I would say that a lot of people um, think that if they didn't grow up swimming, I mean, Siri was 23 when she learned to swim. If they didn't grow up swimming, that I can't do triathlon, I don't know how to swim. That's a, yeah. that's a big limiting belief to start with. But, you know, we teach, I think anyone can do a triathlon. Duncan, we're probably going to sign you up for an Ironman after this. Oh, yeah. That'll be your biggest <laughs> challenge. And then you'll be saying, well, there was this one guy that we just couldn't possibly help, as it turns out. So, <laughs> oh, no, but, that's uh, not that true. Okay. Not but I do think that anyone can do the sport. Like, anyone's capable, and we have taught complete non-swimmers to swim before, so uh, anyone can do it. Um, that's the, usually the biggest thing where they say, I, I don't know how to swim, I've never learned how to swim. So that's the pivotal element of the three, then, uh, the, that people at least sometimes are most worried about whether they're equipped to really do? Yeah, I think yep, it's, exactly. Yeah, it's quite different for everyone. You know, some people, the run is the hardest thing, but... Any anyone in the world can do a triathlon. You know, maybe not anyone in the world can become a champion and be winning races, but anyone in the world can do the sport. And the amazing thing about that is that this sport is such a great vehicle uh, for finding yourself. And it's such a powerful journey. And, and definitely, Duncan, we are signing you up for an Ironman, and we are going to coach you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank God. I don't think you have any uh, numbers or emails or whatever to reach me. So this will be maybe our last time talking. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And if you just tuned in, my guests are Rebecca Keat and Siri Lindley, co-founders of Horses in Our Hands, an organization dedicated to ending horse slaughter. If you'd like to ask Siri or Rebecca a question or offer a comment, please call 8 
813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So I think we've established the significant role sports and competition has played and still does play in each of your lives. Tell me um, what sort of role animals have played in your lives. Like, when, And when did that start? Were animals important for each of you when you were a kid and in your family growing up? Or where did this really kind of kick in? Not necessarily horses per se, but any animals early on? Um, I'll start because that's the real farm girl. But uh, <laughs> for me, animals saved me when I was a kid. I, I was a lonely kid. I had a lot of fear and anxiety. And, you know, animals were my greatest source of love and, and some of my greatest teachers in my life. And, and that was dogs and cats. But I really had uh, nothing to do with horses at all until four years ago. But Beck's story is quite different. Yeah. Well, well, we'll come back to that story for sure, because that seems crucial to our overall story for today. But yeah, I was just curious in each of your cases when animals became important and, and how early that was in terms of your formative years. Yeah, I grew Becky. up um, on weekends on a farm. So I was obsessed with animals from a kid. Like I would lie out there with the cows and the sheep and Nam could never find me because I was out with all the animals. And I used to try and save every single animal from ants to rabbits that were in rabbit traps and uh, mm. i was a real farm girl i always thought i'd grow up being a farmer or a vet yeah <laughs> i wasn't far off right no as it turns out for sure so w- were there horses then as part of that farm yes there were but yeah. to be honest i didn't ride much i wasn't that great Nan literally would put me on the horse smack it on the bum and say hang on and uh, i was never really taught to ride it's just a sort of forced to to learn myself but I, I just loved it right so your thing early on was more just the connection with the creatures regardless of what they were and what they did but just that you were really uh, an animal person through and through it sounds like from the get-go absolutely i was been obsessed with them since i was can first remember three or four years old yeah okay so we've alluded to a pivotal horse uh, and pivotal horse story for that matter so siri can you share the story of the horse that you did rescue uh, i guess uh, around about four years ago yeah four years ago i rescued savannah and savannah came into our lives and literally helped me overcome so many of my fears and my anxieties and and working together with her every day was just this incredible journey of self-discovery and and she was just this healing and amazing force in our lives and one day I thought what are we saving her from and I got on the internet and I googled you know rescuing horses and this video came up and to this day when I google that this video does not come up but this video came up and it was oh my god the most horrific brutal video of the process of horse slaughter and I just it was the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my life and I literally fell to the ground I'm not being dramatic I fell to the ground I was crying out loud and and Rebecca came running up the stairs and thought somebody had died and she's like what's wrong and I just pointed at the screen and she looked at the screen she started crying we looked at each other and we knew that our lives were never going to be the same again it's not like we could take this on. I mean, we both had three jobs and working full time, but we knew we had to do something to save these beautiful horses, these beautiful, inspiring, powerful animals that do such good in the world and always have. Um, so that was the day. And, and literally within a month, we created our nonprofit Believe Ranch and Rescue and saved 117 horses over the last three years. But then we thought, we can't just keep going on like this. Like, we need to end this brutal, horrific practice. 
And that's when we developed horses in our hands. We, we brought together some of the most brilliant minds in, in every single industry, whether it be uh, the entertainment in- industry, sport industry, business industry, and put all these brilliant minds together and created horses in our hands. And we believe with all our hearts that, that we can make this happen. These animals, I mean, they, they carried us through the wars. They, they crossed the country for us. They're teachers. They're healers. They're so beautiful, and they deserve to be from this brutal practice. Yeah, it sounds like yet another instance where something really ugly and awful, in this case, I guess the video that you ended up seeing, led to something quite beautiful and extraordinary and clearly a real calling for both of you. Absolutely. And and we're believers that, you know, out of every horrible situation, something beautiful comes out of it. And in this case, you know, it's almost like we were called to do this because, like I said, I can't, you know, find that video right off the bat. Um, But we were meant to see it and it was meant to be us to to take this on. And as big as it seems and the commitment it was going to take, you know, nothing was going to stop us. Uh, Even to the point we had this this massive gala in February uh, or, yes, February. And I had just had my bone marrow transplant and Beck wanted to cancel it because she said, I need to be by your side. Like, this is like the scariest, most horrible part of your treatment here. And I said, no, the gala must go on. Like, you need to go and, and... It was a huge success. We raised uh, $500,000 at this gala, uh, all about ending horse slaughter. And it means everything to us. And and it comes before anything else in our lives. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, on this show, we talked periodically uh, over the years about horse slaughter. It's always, of course, a grim, upsetting topic. But I do think it's always valuable to return to a topic like this because sometimes people get busy with other things or there's other causes they get passionate about. So that's one of the many reasons I wanted to speak with you both today, just because I felt like it was another opportunity to kind of turn the spotlight back on that. So I'd like to ask both of you to provide us a brief seminar on the nefarious enterprise of horse slaughter, very much including the whole kind of international facets that makes it sort of more complicated and uh, often very much more difficult to intervene and police and and enforce. Yeah, I can back in to that. Sure. Yeah, so horse slaughter um, in the U.S., um, the horse slaughter plants were closed down in 2007. Uh, and the reason for that was because they weren't being inspected or regulated. Uh, and when one of our actual uh, guys that uh, is spearheading our team, our lobbyist, Chris Hyde, and we're very fortunate that he actually wrote the Safe American Food Export Act, which is a safeguard uh, HR 961 Act. Um, he wrote that bill 19 years ago, and he saw what was happening, and he presented that in court, and they have, um, by default, been defunded. So the horse slaughter plants are defunded now. Uh, in the U.S. is actually not banned, um, and that amendment has to be uh, every year. Uh, we have to continue to defund them being inspected. So the safe, uh, the safe Act, when it is passed, will ban horse slaughter and will end uh, the shipment of horses to slaughter uh, to Canada and Mexico. So every year, um, the amount has actually gotten less. So last year, there was about 65,000 were shipped to slaughter. It's still 65,000, too many. But uh, the... Uh, the Europeans, uh, Japanese, uh, they consider it a delicacy. And not only is it just a brutal, awful pipeline, uh, it's dangerous because horses, you know, injected with steroids and, you know, they're not bred as livestock. Um, they're bred, they're companion animals. So that just, uh, you know, that just, that explains everything. Uh, we're, we were never a country that ate horse meat and uh, we shouldn't be. And uh, horses, you know, they serve 
our, our, our country. They uh, carried our, our, our heroes at war. Uh, they plowed our fields. Uh, they're our children's best friend. They're our best friend. They're healers. They're companions. And uh, ending horse slaughter by passing the SAFE Act, um, well, it needs to happen. It should have happened a long time ago. Is Mexico and Canada the two countries that are under this act? Because aren't there other... Aren't there other countries that, through one means or another, are involved with horse slaughter as well? Uh, so right now, horses are shipped from the U.S. only to Mexico and Canada. Okay, so they don't end up anywhere else. It's just those two countries when they do get I shipped do, elsewhere. I do believe that yeah. in the past, I'm not sure, but I do believe in the past also to Japan. I, I'm not 100% sure if that still happens, but I do know for sure Mexico and Canada are uh, the big issues right now is where they're being shipped. So. All right, I have some follow-up questions, but let's get one of uh, There's a caller here. Let's get them involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Siri Lindley and Rebecca Keat. Yeah, hi, is that me? Yes, go ahead, please. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I got a whole bunch of different things for you, and thank you for caring about horses. Um, my first thing is if you have an opinion about the fact that horses do not voluntarily consent to be used by humans as companions or in wars or as beasts of burden. Another thing is, do you have a position on shutting down horse racing? It's one of the worst abusers of horses. Also, do you have a position on stopping the U.S. government from killing and removing wild horses from uh, their native lands? I realize wild horses aren't native in America, but they're more native than most of us are. And finally, is there any direct action civil disobedience that we can do to, do, to shut down the people that are abusing horses, slaughtering them, etc. And thank you very much for what you're doing. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll probably let all... Beck handle okay. this, but yes, we've got opinions on on all these things. Of I'll course, try to remember and, all the questions. You know, okay. Well, 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 well. Let's run through at least as many. I think there was a good three or four there. So if if we don't get to all of them, just because we, you know, have other questions we want to deal with, but but I think the first one was just the whole issue of. Horses not voluntarily consenting to be to be ridden or to be used in other means. I think that was his first question about if you have any kind of position on that. Um, well, yeah, we, I believe yes, that horses. This is just kind of what's happened in our world, and and you're absolutely right with that. But unfortunately, this is what the world is like right now. And I'm going to let Rebecca take it from here, um, as far as what we're trying to do and what we can can do. Any further thoughts on the consent issue? Because the next question, I think he asked about uh, any perspective on horse racing and efforts to... So, the yeah, the horse racing industry, I can answer. Um, and from my knowledge and what I know is that um, uh, uh, very dissimilar to the American Quarter Horse Association, the thoroughbred industry actually does have programs in place to rehome uh, horses off the track. And that is um, getting bigger and bigger. And there's a lot of support for that. And they do have programs in place for that. And unfortunately, um, there is actually a very small percentage of, uh, of the horses shipped to slaughter are from the thoroughbred industry. It's actually only about, I believe, around 10%. 70% are actually quarter horses. So I, I do think it's the American Quarter Horse Association that needs to also step up and find, you know, a program uh, for these horses. But, but the thoroughbred industry has started to move forward in that area. Uh, and then I think I, I wanted to address what was the third and fourth question? I, can you remind me, Duncan? Uh, I think uh, killing and removing wild horses was, yeah, I think, yeah, uh, the third thing. And then I think the fourth thing might have been any recommendations that you two might have for uh, acts of civil disobedience or other means to protest the, the slaughter of horses and generally the, the poor treatment of them. Sure. sure. So addressing question, um, question three, that's really important. And a lot of the uh, the, the, the myths and 
the, the pushback we get from the public um, is, is around that. But um, a lot of people also are really uneducated on um, the, the horses that are being shipped to slaughter. So it, since not, in the last 30 years, I think it's since 1970, uh, wild horses are actually not legally allowed to be shipped. They're protected. They're not allowed to be shipped to slaughter. It's illegal. So unfortunately, there are some that do fall through the cracks, and that does happen, but it's a very, very, very small amount. So when you see the DLM, and I am not um, supporting the way they're rounded up, it's horrific. That needs to change. It's horrible, and maybe that's something we can work on later. But when you see them rounding up the wild horses... That's actually um, not what we're advocating for. Of course, we don't want that to happen, but we are talking about domestic horses. It's the domestic horses that are being shipped right now, yeah. not wild horses. And that's where there's a little bit of um, you know, education needed for the public there. So let's take that exact point and, and move forward with it. So let's say there's horses. How do horses enter the pipeline that might be on a path to slaughter and how would that be prevented under the SAFE Act or any other measures that you might be working on? Right. So, first of all, it comes down to owner responsibility. You know, we're responsible for our for our animals, we're responsible for our pets, our companions, and uh, horse owners need to be responsible for if a horse is sick or unhealthy or needs to be uh, put down, it should not be shipped to slaughter. It should be humanely euthanized, and that is the responsibility of a horse owner. And if they need to find or rehome a horse. They should call. There's hundreds of, re- of horse rescues. We have a horse rescue network, and I know of at least seven, 800 horse rescues that are willing and able and to take in these horses. And uh, what happens is uh, I almost feel like uh, with the auctions, the horse owner knows that there's a dumping ground and that, it can, that horses can be bought by kill buyers, and the kill buyers are the ones that ship them to slaughter. So right now, uh, irresponsible owners, they'll bring their horses to auction knowing they're going to get you know, a decent amount of money for them. And every week we are outbid by these kill buyers and they're actually pushing the prices up on rescues and they'll buy these horses, outbid these rescues that are um, self-funded and uh, non-profits and uh, to make their quota to ship these horses to Mexico and Canada. So it's a service and it's a demand-driven business and I do believe uh, the SAFE Act passing, when it passes, um, it'll actually decrease the number of horses um, that are dumped at auction. It'll have to make uh, more responsible breeding and it'll force these owners to to uh, be responsible horse owners and uh, euthanize these horses, um, not, not uh, you know, have no regard for their life after they've served them all these years by shipping them to slaughter for a small amount of money. And I think doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, every, every time I hear it over the years, I, I squirm when I hear the term kill buyer just because uh, it's as ugly as it sounds. And let me just remind folks that this is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Stress. My guests are Siri Lindley and Rebecca Key, co- who co-founded Horses in Our Hands, a multifaceted organization dedicated to ending horse slaughter. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So, because part of the problem, it seems to me, and you guys know this much better than I do, is that those auctions that you talked about, even those things can go awry, but then aren't there sort of, there's just a whole kind of dark side to this that isn't even as open and seemingly innocent as the auctions, which sometimes themselves... uh, inner around that's far from innocent but aren't there other kind of like black market or just sort of nefarious uh, operations that are also involved in in the trade that that then does lead to horses going to slaughter 
I'm, I'm sure they exist, and I have heard of a couple in Florida, um, but hopefully they're continuing to be shut down. But it's uh, uh, pretty non-existent. I mean, I'm sure it does exist, Duncan. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that it's right, though. I, I, and even with kill virus, there's, not, there's only a, a few dozen uh, feedlots in the U.S. It's not a big industry. It's very right. small. Yeah. Yeah. So describe for me, if you will, how uh, Horses in Our Hands functions. What exactly goes on? What do you guys aim to do? And how do you carry that out? I'll let my wife talk about uh, what we've created here with our PSA and everything. Well, thank you, Beck. Um, we just have the most incredible team, Duncan, of, of really passionate and brilliant people that care as much as we do about this mission. And in the money that we raised uh from the gala in March or February, um, we've created a, an enormous PSA that we're trying to get going. We've got a big social media following. We've got a great reach. We hope to get all of your listeners on board as well. You can all go check out our website at Horses in Our Hands uh, and also on Facebook and Instagram. And what we do is we have a setup where you it literally takes a minute or two minutes of your time to click a link. Uh, you put in your personal information that will not be shared with, with anyone. It's not information that's going to go out to the world. Um, and we contact your local legislator and encourage them uh, and, and ask them to pass the SAFE Act and to pay attention and to help us end horse slaughter. And we've, we've had tremendous traction. Beck, you can say more about the actual numbers, but we're doing an amazing mm -hmm. job. And the more people that we can uh, educate and raise awareness and kind of, you know, take all the myths and, and tell them what the real truths are, um, we can get everyone on board. And the more people behind this, uh, the more likelihood that we can get this safe act passed, which we totally believe we can. Becky, let me uh, if I if I can. Sorry, let me just jump in for one sec because you gave most, but not quite all of the website. So let me just say it's horsesinourhands.org, and it is really great and, and helpful in that way. Like you say, there's templates for uh, letters to legislators and all kinds of great information. So horsesinourhands.org. So sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, so we uh, we actually have over a million and a half reach um, on Facebook. Um, we've had thousands of emails sent to legislators um, through our software program on our website. Uh, it literally takes 60 seconds to send an email to your legislator. And uh, we've had amazing support from some incredible... I hope that's not me crackling. I think it might be my wife. Um, There's yeah. definitely somebody crackling, yeah. Uh, Siri, Siri, keep your microphone still. <laughs> we've had uh, some amazing support from celebrities, um, including Willie Nelson, uh, Bo Derrick, uh, Melissa Etheridge, uh, Julian Hoff, and that's really helped with that celebrity support to leverage more people in the community. Because honestly, Duncan, there just hasn't been enough um, public... I'm sorry about that crackling, really sorry. Uh, maybe Siri can mute herself. Um, there just yeah, I'm on Oh. <laughs> there just hasn't been um, enough public awareness, to be honest. There's never been a public service announcement that's really made any impact. So our goal was we will do the biggest public service announcement ever through the social media campaign and really try and get the public behind it because we didn't know and we were horse lovers, you know, and animal lovers. We had no idea what was happening. And uh, a lot, like, I, I don't know what the percentage is, is a very high amount of horse owners that actually have no idea that when they go to auction to sell their horse that uh, a kill buyer could buy it and take it to slaughter. Like, a lot of them actually don't even know. So it's just getting that awareness out there. And we're just so grateful to be on here because 
we know how many millions of listeners are out there. So educating the public is, is really our goal and having them to take action by uh, clicking that little link on our website or on our Facebook page to send an email to their legislator to tell them they must support this. So here's my question, because this sounds really good. And, it's, and again, the ease of sending the, those emails to legislators, I think, is, is so significant because really anybody, no matter how busy they are, has the time to do that because the work's pretty much done for you. So uh, I don't want to hear anybody say, hey, I, I would do it, but I don't have the time. So let's uh, address that right off the bat. But, but here's the other thing is that, like I said, I've, I've done a number of shows on horse slaughter over the years and inroads are made and I think discussed that uh, the progress and, and the fewer uh, horses that are that are involved in in those uh, plants going to the, in Canada and Mexico, et cetera. But I mean, it, it always seems to kind of stop short of actual legislation going through or something that really is going to be an effective uh, way to intervene and punish, uh, I guess, if things are. So do you feel that like you're on the path to that? What are the prospects? It seems like the goal is to really get Congress to ban the export, right, of the horses. So that would cut off the the path of horses that would be going to slaughter. Yeah. So the bill, um, oh, I'm sorry if there's a bit of feedback. So the bill has been around for 19 years and we're so fortunate to have two of the best lobbyists in the U.S. working for us. And don't ask me how that happened. I think the universe has conspired for us many a times because, you know, this is for greater good. And uh, the man who wrote this AFAC, Chris Hyde, we're so fortunate. His uh, close friend and one of the best lobbyists in the world, Drew Lasofsky, are both our, our two top lobbyists. And they have been working on this. So they know all the issues. They've been working on this for 20 years. And the issue is here that, as you know, there hasn't been the public awareness. And uh, I don't believe the big animal groups have had it at their forefront. I think if they wanted it to be passed, it would be passed by now. I really believe that. That's what I believe. So um, we came in, two athletes that were high performance, that both been number one in the world, and everyone told us we can't do this. And we won't stop until it's done. But it it is very, very close. We have 232 co-sponsors. It's bipartisan. Ninety percent of eighty percent, eighty ninety percent of Americans want this to, to pass and don't agree with horses being uh, killed for human consumption. And uh, it's the committee that's sitting in the bill, sitting in the committee. It's been presented by uh, it's in the House of Representatives, and there's a similar bill in the Senate. And the committee just needs the public pressure to bring it to the floor to be voted on. And I think we're actually closer than people realize. Probably the closest we've been in a very, very long time. But we really just need the public to get behind it. We really need to do that push, and that's why. Right now, all of our uh, money raised, we raised half a million dollars, and, uh, and and there's a little, a lot of our time is going into this, like 40, 60 hours a week, and uh, uh, we need the public to take action, and it doesn't take a lot; it just takes an email to the legislators, and we need uh, the the public just to get behind this, to support this. So it sounds like you think this time the bill can and will go all the way through, provided there's enough people making noise uh, in those legislators' offices. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And we believe in all that. of you getting on board. Yeah, well, there you go. So let's t- take another caller. Hi, you're on uh, Talking Animals with Siri Lindley and Rebecca Keat. Hello? Hi. Go, can you turn down your radio? I think you're hearing that at the same time. Oh, sorry, sorry. No problem. Sorry, I'm confused there for a moment. Um, no. Thank you so much, Siri and Beck, for all you're doing. I just had a quick question. Um, where will the unwanted horses or the, the horses that people drop off at the feedlot, uh, some of them I realize might not know they're going to be purchased by, feed, by pill buyers, but where, were, where will those horses go? That's my question. That's, that's a great question, and we do get that very often. 
And uh, there's not going to be 60,000 horses, you know, running around the street. So we have um, responsible owners won't have a dumping... Uh, irresponsible owners, firstly, won't have a dumping ground because they know that they're, they're not going to be uh, as many purchases at auction. So that will reduce the number there. But uh, there's hundreds of horses. There's over 700 horse rescues um, under the Horse Rescue Network. So they'll either be bought by a new owner, they'll be bought um, by a horse rescue or they'll go back to the same owner. And uh, I think it'll actually put more responsibility back on the owner. And uh, there may be, you know, several horses that, um, you know, may need to be euthanized if they're sick or injured. But I really do think that they would be disabsorbed by the community. One tricky thing about, uh, I think, some of those scenarios that our caller just asked about is that some people that have those horses and that are taking them to the auction, not ever imagining, in most cases at least, I'm sure, uh, that there's a kill buyer on the other end of the transaction. But a lot of times they, you know, they've had to make room for other horses or they just maybe no longer, especially these days with all the economics of the COVID-19 or whatever, can just no longer afford to care and feed that horse. Horse. So they probably really couldn't take that horse back, which is one of the things you said by way of answering that caller. And I think, I mean, you, again, you guys are more steeped in this by, than I am by far, but a lot of the horse rescues, at least that I'm familiar with, are full. And, and again, because everybody that runs those things has incredibly huge hearts, um, overcapacity, if anything. So I, I don't know where any large number of horses are going to go, at least in terms of the horse rescues, under the scenario you just outlined? So there are, like, hundreds of horse rescues across the state. We do get phone calls weekly on, oh, I can't afford to take my horse, and we always are able to find them a home. Um, and I think the owner onus again goes back on the owners um, and, and, and the breeding, and to, there's not going to, you know, they need to reduce that. So I think the pressure needs to be on the owners to be responsible, and there needs to be a, a breeding, um, you know, restriction. And I think that will really help as well. But I, I, I know for a fact that with all of our rescues, we come together and we, we, we haven't had a lot of problems rehoming these horses. Okay. Um, well, that, well, that's great because, I mean, to, to me, it looked like not being as uh, familiar, but, but looking at a lot of full horse rescues and, and people that are talking about, geez, you know, every day we get calls and we just can't take them. So I'm glad that, that you have a broader network of people that can. Um, so we're just sort of in our final moment or two. So maybe you could, because it's getting familiar with your operations. So there's there's horses in our hands, which we've talked about mostly, but there's also the In Our Hands Action Fund. And then we made reference or, or, once or twice to the ranch. So maybe just in our last maybe minute, minute and a half or so, if we could, maybe you could just sort of outline which does what. Now, they're all obviously interconnected, but maybe um, that might be helpful for people to know kind of which roles those other factors play. Sure. I'll start with just uh, Believe Ranch and Rescue is our original nonprofit, and we are the ones actively rescuing horses from auction. And also, just a side note, anyone, if you are struggling to find a place for your horse, you know, you could always call us and we can connect you to your local rescue or somebody that might be able to take your horse. So always make that phone call first before you go to auction. And mm -hmm. Beck, why don't you let them know about In Our Hands Action Fund? Yeah, so In Our Hands Action Fund is our team. Um, it's actually our horses in our hands team, but that was the, that this is our lobbying organization that we set up with our, with our two lobbyists and our, our entire team to, to, uh, to ban horse slaughter. So that is part of that. And that is a C4. And when you look at Horses in Our Hands on social media, on Facebook, actually right now, Horses in Our Hands on Facebook, if you go there, guys, and you'd like to support us, you can actually click uh, a link and uh, have our, uh, our logo, our banner um, on your Facebook icon to show your support. 
Um, please also go to our website, horsesinourhands.org, to actually take action. As we said, it only takes one minute to send an email to your legislator. Okay, great. So I think now we know what each of those three uh, do and how they're all kind of interconnected, obviously. So that's great. So I think we have just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Rebecca Keat and Siri Lindley. The website to go for finding out any of these things, writing your legislator, finding out again if you have a horse that you maybe no longer can afford to feed or look look after, maybe contact them because they might be able to put you in touch with someone locally who can. So it's horsesinourhands.org. And again, they're all over social media with a huge presence. So thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Siri. And uh, great speaking with you. And thanks for all your great work on behalf of our uh, horse friends. Thank you so much, Duncan. And thank you to all the listeners. We so appreciate your support. Right. And also, Siri, again, congratulations on your uh, very good health news. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you, Duncan. That means so much to me. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Sue Weesey to get an update on Operation Roger, in which truckers help transport shelter animals to their forever homes, which are often well across the country and otherwise hard to reach. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner and hear from a longtime fave. This is Brian Regan with a piece called Animals in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I lived in New York City for a while before I came out here. My apartment was really small in New York. I had a goldfish, and I had to keep him in a shot glass. No, it's okay. A little pebble in there for scenery, so. He liked that. He was like, yeah. This is just like the ocean. I like to watch when he try to turn around there. Filtering system, I take a straw. It's like a jacuzzi room. Oh, yeah. I think people are unfair to their pets, you know? Like putting a pet bird in a cage. That's pretty nice, huh? Get in there, Clank, shut up. I'll be making the decisions. I was wondering what a bird's thinking, standing in a cage. Hey, thank you. Hey, I've been blessed with the gift of flight. Appreciate the environment. I know how to fly, I'm standing on a stack. Hey, I've already read these newspapers. In fact, I've whited out some typos. That was Brian Regan with a piece called Animals, taken from his album simply entitled Live. Now it's time to speak with Sue Weesey for an update on this terrific trucker-propelled organization, Operation Roger. This is Sue Weesey on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Sue. Thank you for joining us again on Talking Animals. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Great. So we spoke uh, some nine years ago. So maybe the place to start this morning is with just a brief uh, overview slash reminder of how Operation Roger works. Well, we're a a ragtag group of pet-loving truck drivers who will take a pet that needs a hitchhike. Uh, to its new forever home, and we put it in the cab of the truck with us and treat it as our own. It's our companion. They uh, ride in the, the jump seat, uh, known to protect the truck because it becomes their home, and they take it seriously. Sounds really great, and because I think we know from speaking with you and from over the years just learning generally that there are certain parts of the country where there are shelters that are more complicated, shall we say, and uh, unfortunately are often uh, leading to a lot more animals being euthanized. So the idea is to get them out of there and, and maybe a, a 
several states away or across the whole country to where there's a home for them. And that's what these, uh, as you say, ragtag uh, network of uh, truckers do to, to help get that animal from point A to point B, which sometimes is quite a complicated zigzagging journey, but that's how it works. That's a logistical nightmare, but not only from the shelters and rescues, but we also help individuals. Maybe they had to move for whatever reason and they couldn't take their pet with them. Now they're in a situation where they can't have their pet yeah. and they want to get them. Uh, it could have been uh, uh, truckers we've had who've been hospitalized. We had to go get their pet, you know, and any situation where a pet needs be transported. Yeah, and also we, in terms of just the range of things beyond just the core services that we've described, I know it sounds like that in cases, some cases, sometimes some of the trucks will take food and supplies from one stop to another just to, to help that shelter or that organization get stuff that's been donated or otherwise is available one place that needs to get somewhere else. We've done that, yes. Usually, though, most of see what you see are vans or reapers. So once those trailers are locked, you can't open them. Yeah. So we can only take a very limited amount, whatever room the driver might have, in the cab, which is usually put on the upper bunk. We do have one driver right now who's a heavy haul, and he is able to put uh, quite a bit more onto his trailer. And um, I've seen pictures of his truck. He's packed cab and then what's left over goes on the trailer and it's been a big help yeah get larger amount oh that's great he's the only one that we have all right. Well, thank goodness for him. So, so Sue, I'm wondering, especially from something you just said a moment ago, are some routes for pickup or drop-off of an animal more easily covered and others are, like, tough to get get truckers in that particular area or going on? Yeah. On, yeah. Where would you still need help? And are you still, I assume, seeking truck drivers, especially if they might be doing routes in those areas that aren't as easily reached? Well, the truck drivers, as well as taking layover homes, which is temporary fosters for pets in between drivers, mm-hmm. or shuttle drivers, which is four-wheelers, to help us out. But the what you're asking is, generally, you think the United States is being a rectangle. Well, I-5 in the west, I-90 and 94 in the north, I-95 uh, along the east coast, and then I-10 along the southern. But those are all very difficult areas. You wouldn't think they would be, but they are. Yeah. Historic. And, uh, you know, just where we need a lot more help. Right. So if someone's listening and is a trucker themselves or knows someone who is, who also is an animal uh, person and, and might well want to help out with this, what's their first step to maybe start helping out with Operation Roger? Well, they would text me um, at 682-622-1172 or send me an email to Operation Roger 01 at Yahoo. Okay. And we'll go from there. I'll respond to them and tell them what goes on. Okay. We do train our drivers so uh, they'll know what to expect. Yeah, well, you've been doing it. You've been doing it a long time, so you, I think you've got it down to quite a quite a meticulous uh, organization. So the fifteen years, fifteenth anniversary is in September. Yeah, after Katrina is when we started. Right, that's right. Yeah, we talked about that originally. So, 
And I gather just from our email exchange and, and trying to arrange our, our conversation today that uh, COVID-19 really has not presented any particular uh, problems for Operation Roger. Is that is that? No, do I, it hasn't. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's great. Okay, because that uh, seems like one of the few uh, organizations or situations that you can say that of. So that's, that's very fortunate. So, okay, well, so anything else that we should know? Just, again, any other kind of help, like if people aren't truckers, are there other ways that they could help or donate or send food or what, what, what other ways might people help? Uh, uh, well, what we call the layover homes, the temporary foster. Right, and yeah. I have a lot of people that, you know, it's after this long of doing things, down in the flex, we're having to start all over again. I don't know um, what my layover homes and shuttle drivers of the past are still available. If the people out there uh, realize that they had put in an application, if they would just let me know they're still interested. Yeah. Um, go to our website, which is operationroger.com, and uh, you can freeze it and cover your purse or over applications, and there's a drop-down box there. Yeah. Drop-down box there, and there's a list of, of areas that can you know you can help. Right. And uh, we need it to help the pet. Yeah, well, no, that's great, and I'm glad you mentioned the shuttle driver again. I meant to come back to that because uh, I was going to say that, you know, even people aren't truck drivers, don't have trucks, whatever. There are these shuttle drivers that sometimes a truck might only get to a certain point where they can't really veer any further off their route. So shuttle drivers would pick up that pet at that point and transport it somewhere else and or these layover homes where they would kind of hang for a bit until the next truck picks yeah. picks them up and takes them the next part of their way or takes them all the way to their new home or whatever the case may be. So, again, let's just so run so through. Many, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Many of our drivers, uh, they may run only the east so they could pick up but not necessarily take one to the west or yeah. vice versa. Right. So this is where the layover homes come in, and they're very vital. Okay, Sue. So I'm going to run down the contact information because we have just uh, we're just about running out of time here. But you're, to text you, you can do six eight two six two two one one seven two. You can also email Operation Roger one at yahoo dot com, and the website overall is operationroger.com, dot com. Right. Okay, Sue. Well, thank you so much. This is just uh, I continue to be really impressed. Just think it's a great, great uh, service to give uh, so many more animals homes that m- might not otherwise um, be able to do so. So thank you again. You're welcome. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals coming up at 11 on WMNF. It's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola Lalay. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, who's also sitting in for Scott Elliott today on the All Souls edition of It's the Music. Music continues beyond that into the afternoon, the evening, and into the wee hours. And back in tomorrow morning as well. That's all at uh, WMNF or WMNF.org. We have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I invite you to return next Wednesday at 10 a.m. for another edition of the show. And also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available there, too. There are also links to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook and the show or me personally and follow me on Twitter and Instagram. So this is Talking Animals on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. NPR News headlines coming up momentarily, and then Rob Lorai after that. Thanks so much.